Hey everybody and welcome to CEO Sit Downs where I, John Cannell, your host, have sit down conversations with CEOs from all walks and all industries to hear their stories, pick their brains, and learn from their experience. On today's show, I am happy to welcome my friend Caleb Cox. Caleb is the CEO of All Pokey TCG, a Pokemon trading card company. Caleb and I met several years ago during our internship at TD Ameritrade, so this interview was just a great opportunity for us to catch up and for me to learn more about Caleb's business. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Caleb Cox. Hey, Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Awesome. Well, Caleb, to get started, give the audience an idea of your background, you know, high school on up, and kind of lead us down the road of how you got started on this venture. So I went to Elkhorn South High School. um, And ever since I was young, I've honestly always considered myself sort of an entrepreneur. I always took a lot of weird side jobs growing up. Um, and not really because like I needed to, just because I've always wanted to keep busy. No matter what I've done, it's like if I'm not doing something, then I feel like I'm wasting my time. Uh, so growing up, I I mean, I had quite a bit of friends, but I was always off like working on a side project or a business or something like that. So the people I always associated myself with were kind of uh, same minded. Uh, so that took me through like high school. I did a lot of like buying and selling of things. So like Black Friday was always a big time for me. Um, I'd go out on Black Friday. My thing was in high school to pay like, not necessarily bills, but I like to eat out and goof off a bunch. So I would buy a bunch of uh, TVs, flat screen TVs on Black Friday. And then I would resell them the week later on Facebook or Craigslist actually mostly back then. Um, but that's kind of like my main thing that I did for like when I started being an entrepreneur and I realized very quickly, I mean, I can make a lot more do- money doing that than working a minimum wage job. Cause the minimum wage I think was seven twenty at that time, if I remember right. Um, and I was flipping these TVs for double profit. So I worked my little uh, minimum wage job until I had enough money. And then once I had enough money, I started reinvesting what I made back into at that time flat screen tvs um and then that's when uh, i was approached by you know dr easily uh he's a teacher at uh, the college me and john both attended um uh, university of nebraska omaha great college and i just it was just a weird time i like ran into him he asked me what i like did for a living and i was like at that time i did more buying and selling of electronics than i did at like any other job. So I was like, Oh, I buy and sell electronics. And he's like, Oh, is it your own business? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you should apply for being an entrepreneur, this entrepreneurship scholarship um, to that college. And I wasn't even at the time, I wasn't really thinking about college too much. I'm pretty uh, short minded. If I'm honest, I don't really think too long term. Like I've, <laughs> I've gotten better. <laughs> I've gotten better at it since I've gotten older. Um, but I was like, hey, I might as well. I never had like stellar grades, in, especially in high school. College, I kind of buckled down. But high school, I liked to, liked to goof off a lot. Um, 
So I applied for that scholarship. Lo and behold, it was the only scholarship I got. <laughs> but hey, I'll take it. Like, I mean, you take what you're handed, right? So ended up going to uh, University of Nebraska, Omaha. And part of the scholarship was we had to live in this dormitorium with these other entrepreneur like minded people. Um, and I think, let me think, I think everyone that I lived with has their own business now, except one. I'm not even sure he might, I haven't talked to him since college. Uh, so I still bought and sold a lot of electronics through college. Um, and then during my freshman year of college, I started a drone business. Uh, now when I was a freshman, now drones are pretty mainstream now, but when I was a freshman, they were not mainstream. And I actually kind of started this in high school. What I would do is I would build custom drones. Um, and I was one of the first people that put GPSs in them. Um, and so they could all be, you didn't even need a remote. You could just use an app and it would follow a GPS pattern that you'd input. Uh, but I did it for farmers mainly. So we live in Nebraska. There's a lot of corn. There's windmills somewhere and places like that. Um, so I, and a lot of guys were actually wind people that had windmills because you don't know this, but you have to like maintain those quite often and climbing them. You have to like hire someone to climb them and maintain them. And it, apparently it gets pretty expensive. So a lot of the drones I sold were to check on these windmills. They fly it up to the top of the windmill and then no one had to climb up there. And they just say, Hey, it looks, looks good up there. I don't know what they looked at, but <laughs> that's what I imagined they do. Um, so I bought, uh, or I sold a lot of drones my freshman year of college to help pay uh, for for that. Um, and I did that through my junior year, um, built up probably 400 drones in that three-year time span. Um, and that was nice, but then drones became way more mainstream and I couldn't keep up with the competition, basically. I couldn't get big enough. Uh, to compete with a company called DJI. You've probably have seen their drones and like Best Buy and stuff like that um, because I ordered all my parts and stuff from China. Um, well, so do they. And they order <laughs> in such a such a big, like in mass and they got such significant discounts that I just, I it, the, the margins were no longer there for me. So I quickly had to think, okay, I had two options at that time. I could go to some investment bank and try to get money and compete with them directly um, but it would have to be a multi, multi-million dollar, uh, loan basically. And as a junior in college, I was not ready to take on that commitment, getting a loan that size, especially when I'm just paying, trying to pay for college. Uh, and I was trying to pay for my wife's college too. Um, and so I was like, all right, I can't do that idea. And so I quickly was like, all right, well, I don't think I can know. I can no longer do this. I can no longer maintain my growth with this business. So I started trying to think of other businesses and I came up with a uh, supplement business um, because back then I was pretty into fitness. I mean, I'm still into fitness, but not near as much as I am or I was. Uh, so I started a supplement business that was mainly focused on the elderly Uh Pretty, I was trying to get more niche because I like I can't I couldn't compete with the big guys, and the whole idea was that doctors could prescribe um, their patients supplements, um, elderly people supplements, and then they'd bring that like a ticket to their doctor, say hey I need these supplements, and my company would make a batch that would basically mix all the supplements together safely, um, and so like they just take like one scoop of this powder every day, and it'd be all the supplements they would need. Um, 
And that idea took off pretty quickly. I won a lot of uh, contests with it. Uh, if you guys don't know what pitch contests are, you basically go in front of judges or people like that, um, or investment bankers, and you pitch an idea, kind of like Shark Tank almost. Um, I won the college's biggest one. Uh, it was called, I actually have the trophy somewhere. It's like the, their big pitch contest. And uh, part of the contest was that they just give you some money at the end to help take off your idea, like take off with your idea. Um, and so I did that, but that dream quickly dissipated on me. I worked with a flavor specialist was his like technical term. Uh, when he was helping design the flavors for my business, uh, well, he stole the idea hundred percent from me and started his own company. <laughs> like, and he had a lot more money than I did back then. Uh, so he was able to get it going pretty well, but I, I never signed like a contract or anything with him. So for your, the new entrepreneurs out there, be, be more careful than I was because I couldn't do anything about it. Um, so he took off with that idea and I kind of just was left in the dust. And I was like, well, and as I worked on this business, I kind of fell out of love with it anyway. So I was like, well, it wasn't like the worst thing in the whole world. And then my senior year of college, this thing, this kind of fell into my lap, uh, a trading card business. Um, I was trying to still pay for my college as I was attending. And me and John at this time were both working at TD Ameritrade. Uh, but I was doing this on the side. Um, and I, the, the, what, what made me come up with this idea actually was I was in a uh, marketing class, right? And they were talking about Google Analytics. And that day I was sorting through my old Pokemon card collection from when I was a child, right? I was, I collected a lot when I was really, really young. Um, and I was just looking up on Google Analytics and it was just I, a straight up graph, like, that it was getting searched so much than the previous years. I was like, there might be something here. So what Google Analytics shows you is kind of like how much something's getting searched by the general public. And Pokemon was just taken off like a skyrocket. So I was like, okay, this could be big. Uh, so I started doing a lot of research, a lot of late nights, looking up to should I invest in a collect the collectibles industry, um, in particular trading cards. and. I was, it ended up just like, yeah, this is probably a really good idea. I looked at historical charts and everything was basically doubling in value from the previous years. Every year was doubling, doubling, doubling. And I was like, all right, I'm an S&P 500 investor right now. <laughs> this I'm making, what is it, 3 to 5% a year? Or I could invest it in a collectible. And this was uh, pre-COVID too. So I was like, okay, I had like, I don't know, probably a thousand dollars to my name. And I went all in, I invested in, uh, Pokemon. Um, I, you guys, this is a podcast. So you can't see it, but I bought a, what's known as a base set booster box. It was like the original print of Pokemon cards. Right. And I put all my money into it. Well, by mid COVID. So I bought it. Let's just say it was like right around a thousand dollars mid COVID that box. It was going for like $25,000. So it did, that's just like the comparison of how much it increased in that short amount of time. It was a very good investment. Um, and I just kept, it just kept getting better and better and better as I kept continuing with this business. I would meet up with people locally um, and buy their old collections. And then I'd go on eBay, usually eBay, 
and I'd flip it and it was paying for college. It was giving me a little extra cash to go do whatever I wanted to do. And it just kept growing into what it is today, which is a very big business to be running out of a very small home. (laughs) (laughs) Caleb, that's awesome. I love hearing all those stories. Oh my gosh. Um, so let, let's talk about your current endeavor, all pokey TCG explain to the folks exactly. I mean, going from meeting people around town, buying their collections, how do you do that now at scale? Well, so that's how I started was buying collections. I started very small. Um, just like I said previously, I never really had enough money where I wanted to take out a loan and take on all that risk because loans, even if your business fails, you still got to pay them back, right? And I was not ready to take that risk. So I started small, bought a lot of local collections, flipped it on eBay, and I kept repeating and repeating and repeating until I had a fairly good sized eBay profile where I was fairly well known on the uh, trading card community of eBay, right? Well, I hit a point where it's like, all right, I'm doing this in my spare time. I'm picking up a lot of collections, but it's a lot of work. Listing stuff on eBay is a lot of work and a lot of fees. If you guys have ever sold anything on eBay, it's about 15% in fees. So when you sell something, you got to pay, you got to pay eBay around 15%, which is a big chunk of margin. Um, So I hit a point where I was like, I'm tired of paying these fees. I'm going to try to branch off of selling on eBay and start my own thing. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, I branched off and by, by this time I had a fairly good fund built up. Um, and at this time I was mainly focused on vintage trading cards. So like old school stuff from 1998 to like 2004, mainly, uh, it's kind of known as in the Pokemon community, the wizards of the coast era, cause that's who made the cards back then. Uh, now Pokemon makes their own cards, but back then it was a company called wizards of the coast. Um, so I did, I, I was like, okay, how can I get bigger than I am right now? I'm buying all these local collections. Uh, I started then buying collections on the internet and you learn a lot in a very short amount of time buying stuff on the internet. Cause sometimes it's too good to be true. So like I'd buy a card on eBay and I'd get it being way worse in condition than I thought And conditions, kind of everything when it comes to trading cards. So you'd get busted pretty bad. Sometimes you'd get a car and be like, this is the worst thing I've ever done. Um, but you learn from it and eBay's actually really good at like returns for it. Now, back then they weren't as, as good, but like nowadays, if a, the card's over a certain amount of value, you actually have to send it to eBay first. The seller does. And then they're like, oh, this card is the correct condition that the seller stated. And then they send eBay will then send the buyer the card back then. They didn't do that, but they were pretty good with like returning stuff. Like one time I bought like a $5,000 card. Um, and I got it and it was just, it was actually a completely different card than the one I bought. Uh, and luckily I was able to return it and I got everything back, but it was a big headache. I got tired of that headache. And so I decided, all right, I'm going to start trying to, uh, do something new. I'm going to invest in new cards. Um, so new sets at the time I was investing, I'd go to my local Walmart and I'd buy some boxes. I never bought all the boxes. I'd always buy like one or two. It's kind of just a, uh, I don't know, little, little, make a little money, not too much. And that was good, but I was only making, I was barely making anything. It was like an extra hundred bucks a week, which is, I mean, it's nice. Um, I wanted to get bigger than that though. I saw a lot more opportunity in this business. So I reached out to what's known as distributors. Distributors 
are what sell the new product to uh, stores. So like Walmart, Walmart's its own distributor, but, uh, or they use this company called MJ Holding, which they own. But uh, like your local Pokemon store gets their products from distributors. Your local card store gets all their new stuff from distributors. So I reached out to every single distributor that the Pokemon company uses. Um, and one, one out of like 150 reached back out to me and they were like interested in working with me. And it's, it was a good job uh, on them because I've definitely paid them quite a bit of money since then. Um, but so that's how I got started. I started buying product from this distributor at a significant discount than what I was buying it for. Um, so my margins increased, uh, pretty substantially because of that. Now, when you work with a distributor, they all work differently. I have m multiple now and they all work differently, but this one at the time, uh, they do something called like allocations. So they look at your previous six months purchase history. And when a new set comes out, they're like, all right, he's given us $50,000 in the past six months. We're going to give him 1% of this new product that we're going to get. Um, so when you start with a distributor, you start extremely small. You get like one or two boxes, your first orders. Uh, they, they're nice and they help you out a little one or two. And I remember I was so stressed back then because I was get growing a lot. Like a lot of people were starting to purchase stuff through me. I feel bad now because I remember calling them and like yelling at them like, listen, I'm getting orders for like 50 boxes and you guys are giving me three. <laughs> so, I, it, but now it's worked out. They explain the whole process and then they look at their six months history. So I, so I said, all right, uh, let me work a deal with you guys. What do you have that people don't want to buy right now? So I just need to build up my reputation basically with you guys so I can get this new product. So we came to an agreement. I bought a bunch of this crap product that no one really wanted, uh, but I, I made it work. Um, I, I was able to at least I, at that time you could flip that product for basically what you paid for, but it made me get better allocations for new stuff. Um, and so I started getting, actually, I could get my numbers that I sort of wanted. I, I, I still want more than what I get today. Um, like a lot more, but I was hitting some numbers. I was making more and I've just continuously kept growing it now for the past two years until, uh, what it is today. All John, you can see all these boxes behind me right here. Those are all that I've opened on my live stream. So I have two stores now, a sealed site where people can purchase my products. Um, and it remains sealed and it ships to them sealed. And then I have a live site, which I host these live streams where people can purchase product. Um, and then I open up up on a live stream with a bunch of people on TikTok, Twitch, and YouTube. That is amazing. Oh my gosh, that's that's quite the story. Um, <laughs> one thing I'm curious about though, Caleb, so like you as a kid, I had Pokemon cards. Um, I sold them like when I was in the fifth grade for like $170 with a buddy of mine. Sounds like I should have waited. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious, having kind of been exposed to that, what constitutes the value of the card? Because you mentioned its condition. Um, but are there certain cards that are worth more than others, like the legendary Pokemon, the starter Pokemon? What what makes up that final price? Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, I pretty much have everything completely memorized now. I can list off every Pokemon and pretty much the first seven sets by their card order in those sets. So I, <laughs> I've had to learn my stuff throughout this time. Um, but really what, I mean, it's kind of, when I tell people what to invest in when it comes to trading cards is basic economic 
principles, right? If something's not printed very much, if there's a scarce amount of something, usually it's a better investment than when there's a lot of something. Um, and that really has made uh, Pokemon's cards what it is today. A lot of it's like the more vintage stuff, the stuff that wasn't printed as much uh, because there wasn't as of a big of demand for it back then. Um, now, when the first set came out, there was quite a bit of demand, but not the first edition. So the first of the first was like... You get first edition base set Pokemon cards. They're worth a lot, like a lot, a lot. Even the most basic cards. Like I, uh, I have a, I, it's a PSA, which is a grading company. I'll explain that here in a little bit. Uh, but I have a PSA eight Bulbasaur right now. I have like 40 of them, um, but it's first edition. Just that one card is worth like a hundred, hundred bucks right now. And it back in the day was extreme. It was fairly common, but as time goes on, gotten more rare more scarce people threw their cards away or they donated them somewhere and now collectors only have them um so scarcity is really what drives up the value of pokemon cards and what makes it a lot of fun with the newer sets is that pokemon doesn't print the exact same amount for every single set so there was a, a recent set that came out called evolving skies um and the demand is greatly greatly outweighing how much they made um, so there's not much quantity out there right now. And I mean, this set's like, I think it's like six months old right now. So they just printed six months ago when the set first came out, you could buy a booster box, which is 36 packs for right around a hundred bucks, hundred bucks, 120 bucks. Um, but now you can't get that same exact booster for under 270. It's just been six months since it's come out. Um, so even new stuff, they, I think they do it on purpose. They're just like, we're not going to print too much of this and see what happens, that type of stuff. So Caleb, how do you judge that? You, you made the comment that you could tell that the demand was far surpassing, um, the supply. Do you judge that based on what you're getting from like the Pokemon collectible community or is there data that they release? How is that determination made? Yeah. So they actually don't release the data, but as I've gotten bigger with my distributor, I can kind of tell how much they printed based off how much I've been allocated. Um, same thing with the sets in Japan. So I do a ton and I mean a ton. I'm probably the biggest or the second biggest seller of international cards in the entire world right now. Um, there was a set in Japan that just released called Paradigm Trigger. Um, and I mean, just getting that set to the U S is almost an impossible journey. It requires me to stay up sometimes 24 hours so I can talk with people in Japan. So I like work. I still have a day job because I like my day job. Um, and, but I have to hire a translator a lot of times and I'm talking to all these big, big head honchos of trading cards in Japan and they're trying to work out a deal and they usually try to charge me a crazy premium and, I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but you Pokemon doesn't release their numbers. So they're just not like, hey, there's this much of this set, but I can usually judge it by how hard it is for me to get, whether it is an English set or an international set. So does the um, English or the international uh, language on the card, does that affect its value at all? Um, yes. And it's what's what's really funny is uh, like the big international, like mainly it's uh, Japan right? A lot sure. of people collect a lot of Japanese cards. Um, same thing in Japan though. So how it usually works between Japan and uh, the U S is Pokemon's pretty much based out of Japan, right? 
So they release uh, usually multiple smaller sets than the ones in, in the U.S. So they'll release like every, three sets to every one set in the U.S. Um, and those sets release anywhere between six to three months prior um, to when the U.S. set is released. So <clears throat> that's why people really like Japanese cards, because you can get the cards earlier in the U.S. Um, than, than you would in the U.S. because the sets release earlier. So I can open up a pack of Japanese cards that haven't even that set or that artwork hasn't been released yet in the US. So this might be a dumb question and forgive me if it is, but you know, these Pokemon cards, if memory serves, they had all the information on it about the special attacks, their life and their health. Are there people who actually um, have Pokemon battles with these cards anymore? Is that a thing or do yeah, people just collect them? It's a big community. Now, I would say 90% of people, probably 95 are collectors. Okay. There's not at near as many players, um, but it is fun to watch them play. There's actually, there's huge international conventions and all sorts of stuff. Like next year's one is getting held in Japan, which I actually might be attending. Um, this past one was held in, oh, I can't remember, somewhere in Europe. Um, and then they do regional events and uh, nation side events and, and things like that. Um, but there's definitely a lot more collectors out there than there are players. For sure. Dang that, that's still super interesting to me though. Um, mainly because my exposure to Pokemon was through the cards, but, um, my game boy, you know, fire, red, sure. leaf, green. Yeah. Um, golly, that's, that's a throwback. You know, sure. though, that's also a great business right now is vintage games. Like really? Yeah. Solid real copy of fire red still goes for a lot you know i have a terrible story about a, a vintage game because i'm kind of in the vintage game community um it's just part of being in pokemon you you collect pretty much everything everything pokemon is kind of like what i do now but this person on facebook marketplace had a sealed uh still in the box a sealed version of pokemon emerald which is a, a pretty old game right it's pretty darn old i mean that came out i think when i was in middle school um, and I, I hit up the seller right away cause they wanted, they had it listed for like 50 to 50 bucks. And I hit him up right away. I said, listen, this is worth a lot more than $50. Uh, like, oh, like significantly more like that. That could, that could be a life changing thing that you have right there. Um, and they were, they were like, oh really? And I was like, yes, I'll give you the fairest offer you're going to get from anybody. After I get off work, I'll drive to you. We'll look at it together. I'll give you a fair appraisal on it and I'll make an offer. Well, later that day while I was working, I got a message on my phone and it was a picture of the game outside of its sealed like box. Right. And they're like, yep, the game looks good. And I was like, did you, did you open it? And they're like, yeah, someone else reached out to me and they wanted to see what the game, if the game was in the box. And I was like, you don't know how much money you just lost. You don't know. And I'm like, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but you should have kept it sealed. So anyone out there, if you have any old sealed games, do not remove them from the box because like me, I would have sent it to a grading company, which I'm sure I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, they give it a grade and then it can be worth a lot depending on that grade. 
Yeah, explain that process to us because in preparation for our conversation today, I did watch a video and I don't understand it all. I know that it looks very immaculate with all these cards and these very plastic and pristine cases, but how does that all work? Are there many grading companies in the United States? I don't even know. There's three main ones right now, PSA, CGC, and Beckett. And PSA is pretty much the most well-known and then Beckett's behind it and then CGC. I'll show you, John. This is a PSA card. You can kind of see it right. Oh, it lights up the way. Right here. This is a first edition Nitto King from Bayset. Um, but yes, grading is a huge part of the community. Um, when COVID first hit and everyone was getting stimulus checks, um, pretty much everyone uh, was, people were starting to kind of catch on to this, this wave of collectibles, right? PSA actually had to shut down for like four months because they had so many submissions. Um, but what, what people like me do is we get, we buy like collections, right? I look at these collections for these really rare cards. Like I, and you just kind of learn as you, you go, um, I'd find the rare cards. The next thing you look at is the condition. Will this get a PSA 10, which is extremely, I mean, and I mean, extremely hard to do, but it's life changing. It can be life changing if it can, um, so that's the next thing I'd look at would be condition of the card. And I have a bunch of tools. I have microscopes. I have everything under the sun to try to gauge the condition myself. And that was part of my business too when I got started is I'd, I'd give people my expertise and tell them what grade they I think their cards could get. Um, but I'd buy these collections. I'd check out the quality of the cards. And I if I deemed them worthy, I'd send them off to PSA for grading. And I mean, depending on the grade, I mean, it can 10x the value big time. Uh, like, and it sometimes can be even a lot more like if I get, like I had a, a, a base set Charizard, right? I bought off a local collection. It came back a PSA 10. And I think I, I don't even remember how much I flipped it for, but it was, it was significant, but getting that PSA 10 is difficult. You really have to know what you're doing. There's a lot of YouTube tutorials. So if you guys have old collections out there, watch the YouTube tutorials and it's kind of fun just to send them in anyways. Um, but yeah, that's what I would suggest doing. Is that a costly process to send it into PSA? It depends. Their pricing changes a lot. Um, I just submitted a submission of like 350 cards and every card cost $50 to grade. So, I mean, it definitely adds up. <laughs> it can add up quick, but the I, I, like, I'm very comfortable with it now. And I usually make a giant Excel spreadsheet of, what grade I think it will get, uh, what it will get if it grades better, and what it will get if it grades lower. And I always base it off the lowest grade I think it will get. Um, and that's like my safety margin. Um, so if it's worth it at the lowest grade I think it will get to, to send it in, then I usually send it in. So when it comes to that grade, um, I guess, is there ever a second opinion? Like, do any of these rating agencies, rating companies, do they ever go to one? Or are they all on the same page? Mm -hmm. So they're not on the same page. That's, the, that's what makes it really, really fun sometimes. So there's kind of a new-ish company. They're pretty already well-known called CGC, right? But they grade very strictly, like stricter than PSA and Beckett. Beckett grades pretty hard too, but CGC, in my opinion, definitely grades the hardest. Now you could ask another collector and they'd be like, nah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But I've graded 10,000 cards and I know CGC in my opinion grades the hardest. Um, so 
what I've done in the past, and it's usually always worked out fairly well for me, is I'll look at uh, cards that are graded by CGC in a CGC 9 or 9.5. Um, and these cards, I'll, I'll, I'll purchase them, I'll get them shipped to me, and I don't even just look at the grade, I look at the card that's encapsulated itself, um, and then I crack it out of its case and I send it to PSA. And about, I'd say, 50% of the time, I can get it to a 10. Um, now, 50% of the time, it remains the same, but that's like another side of the hobby that a lot of people like, but you really got to kind of know what you're looking for. That's kind of like expert level when you're trying to cross it over. They call it like crossover grading um, from one company to another. Usually it's not worth it, but if you know what you're doing, it definitely can be. Sure, sure. That is, that's so interesting to me, mm -hmm. actually. I actually have a disaster story with that where someone crossed over one of my cards that I sold. And, uh, and I sold it to this guy because me and him are really good friends, right? We we met through Pokemon. We were both collectors. And he was like, hey, I really look. It was a, a, a PSA 8 first edition Dark Charizard, which is a really old card in its first edition. So it's pretty darn valuable. At the time, it was worth about a thousand bucks. Well, he crossed it over to Beckett and it got a Beckett 9.5, which immediately raised the value <laughs> very, very substantially. Um, so I was a little beat up about it, but he's a friend. So I'm glad it worked out for him. So on that note, what is the most valuable Pokemon card? That would be the Pikachu illustrator card. A lot of you may have seen Logan Paul owns the best copy of it. Um, but it's a very expensive card back in the way back in the day, you basically submitted an illustration to the Pokemon company. Um, and they'd send you this, this card. Um, I think there's only, if I remember right, 36 known in existence, but they made over a hundred, but I think there's only like something like 30, 36, to like 40 known copies of it. And Logan Paul has the highest graded copy. Now, uh, I, I know a lot of collectors that actually do own that card. Uh, I'm, uh, part of my business is I've middlemaned a lot of transactions, um, what that means is these really, really expensive cards that can be worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. Uh, I've had sent to me and then basically some, another party sends me the money and then I send it, I, I send it to each of the, who did it. So like, I'm like a safety net, right? So no one gets scammed. Um, cause there's a lot of scammers out there. Even you guys, a lot of you probably have seen the Logan Paul video where he got scammed from, uh first edition base set boosters. And I was the first person, I can honestly say this, that said that those boxes were fake. No one, everyone was giving me a hard time when I said it, but I knew it was going to be fake. And it ended up being fake. So it's one of my like success stories. Like you guys should listen to me. I was number one, right? <laughs> so in this business, Caleb, how important is credibility? Big, big. Um, no one will want to buy from you if you're not credible, right? There's a lot of people in the past year that I always say their sellers gone bad, right? Um, usually it's people that get put in really bad situations. Um, like they get scammed and then they go out and start scamming people, um, which it happens a lot. There's a lot of uh, Facebook groups for these feedbacks. Um, so if you're just getting into it and like someone, you, you're trying to buy a collection from someone, I always recommend joining these feedback group because that's where collectors go. Um, like, like, all right, this guy wants to sell me a $5,000 collection. Um, and it, you got to, a lot of times it's a lot of trust. Um, some people mm -hmm. don't want to use uh, PayPal goods and services, um, because they take out a really hefty fee. Um, but it's like, a, it's like another safety net type of a thing. Um, 
So a lot of people don't like doing that. So these Facebook groups are really important to have like really good credibility on there. So like back in the day when I was lesser known, I would sell a card and then I'd ask someone to give me feedback in these feedback groups. So I could always, if someone was like, oh, I don't really know if you're real or something like that, I'd say, all right, well, here's a hundred reviews of my small business type of a thing. Now, on that note, Caleb, I'm I'm really interested because, and once again, preparing for this conversation, the use of social media for a business like this is vital. Um, but give us an idea of your, your strategy, how you go about it, what are the key points within the week when it comes to promotion, and how you kind of group it all together, your social media presence. Yeah. So that's where I struggled the most was anything to do with marketing. I have no marketing background whatsoever. Um, so when I initially got into this business, I really, really struggled. Um, especially with like the new products, I didn't know how to get people to buy from my website rather than buying through eBay. That was the hardest thing. Now, the main thing that helped me was margins. Um, I can go, I can price my things lower because I don't have to pay an eBay fee than what someone would buy on eBay. So that's helped out a lot. Um, and honestly, just making content is extremely important. When I first started, I made eight. When I started my TikTok, I made eight TikToks every day. I'd get up at 4 a.m. and I'd make eight really good TikToks the best I could. At the time, I was filming on an iPhone, like an iPhone like eight or something like that. Maybe it was like a six. I don't even know. Um, but it was the best I could do. I didn't have a nice PC or anything like that to edit these videos, but I tried to make them as quality as I could. Um, and then I was slowly growing, slowly, very, very slowly, but I was growing, right? Every video, I'd get like five, six, seven followers from it. Then I started doing little giveaways. I'd get little more followers and I, I never gave away like something crazy, but if people are offered something for free, a lot of times they'll follow for it. Even if it's a $5 card, they'll be like, Hey, it's a free $5 card. I might as well follow this guy. So I did a, a lot of giveaways. Um, that helped a lot, but mainly just continuing the grind has made me more successful than other people forcing myself to keep making content. Cause a lot of people kind of get complacent and they get tired of making content. You really can't. You just got to keep making content, keep getting new customers because people come and go. People start collecting. They stop collecting. Right. I mean, that's kind of how collectibles are. Um, and that, and then I took off during COVID when people really started getting those uh, little paychecks. They uh, Collectibles took, I mean, I mean, took off. So it was a, that was an exciting time. Um, I've never paid for marketing or anything like that. The only thing I've paid for marketing wise, I guess, would be SEO management, which means search engine optimization, um, trying to get up in the Google in Google, basically. So someone looks up like Pokemon cards. I want to be towards the top. Now, I'm still not at the top of Pokemon cards, but if someone looks up a particular set, usually I'm in the top 10. Um, so that that helps. So would you say um, SEO has been worth it? Um. Right now, it's helping a lot. When I first started, no, it was not. Um, but long term, it has definitely helped. When I first started trying to get up in, in search engines, it was very, it was a struggle, right? I, I was like placed like 60th in most searches. Um, you learn a lot, like backlinks. Backlinks are extremely important for Google. What that means is basically another website has a link to your website. Um, Google calls those backlinks. They see and they're like, oh, this guy's on another website. Interviews are really important. Um, I haven't done too many interviews 
quite yet, but I have some big people reaching out to me. Like I know Vice News wants to interview me. Um, things like that help a lot with with search analytics and Google search optimization. Um, but it's helping a lot right now. I keep I'm moving up. People are actually like so when you move from 40th place to 35th. It's not much of a move, right? No one scrolls that far into Google. But when you're moving from 10th place to getting on the front page of Google, like the 8th or 7th place, that's a huge jump, right? That's way more visibility to your website. So in that sense, it's worth it, but it does take a while to get there. Sure. So how many TikToks are you putting out these days? Oh, not near as many. Um, I know I just said making content is extremely important, but I have a very good base of uh, constant purchasers now enough where I can't keep up. Basically it's I I've hired my mom. That's how much I uh, can't keep up. Yeah. So my mom works for me full time now. Uh, she packages all the orders. Um, and it's a, it's an eight hour a day job. I mean, I just shipped, shipped out 400 orders from yesterday this morning. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's keep me busy. Dude, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. Um, so, so back to the social media here, Caleb, we, we talked about TikTok and for the folks at home, I mean, Caleb has 216.8 thousand followers on TikTok, so it's no small group, but educate the audience here on, um, discord. Cause we've, we've gone back and forth about this a bit. TikTok is, um, obviously a greater community, but discord is more, more, it's, it's certainly smaller, but it's also more intense, more focused. Is that fair to say? Yes, exactly. For all of you entrepreneurs out there, I would heavily, even if you don't even use it, I'd recommend getting good with Discord, knowing what you're doing, knowing how to use bots in Discord. Um, that's where I, I, I call it two different two, two different groups, right? TikTok followers, they're the people that like to watch my content, right? They aren't necessarily purchasers. Uh, they don't buy near as much from me. And then there's Discord. Discord is like my group for my main purchasers, right? The, the the people that actually like me enough to purchase products for me. Um, and so I give them I give them little discounts and stuff like that because usually they're giant promoters too. Um, so someone on my Discord, they order a box for me, they get an amazing pull. A lot of time I pull, I mean they get a very good card. Um, they might make a TikTok video saying, hey. All pokey TCG sold me this booster box and I pulled the best card in this set from him. Then it gets out to more general public. And then that usually will lead to more people checking out my TikTok and maybe even getting in the discord where they become kind of like my main focus and my main group. And it's kind of funny. I have so many friends now that I've met through like my TikTok and on my discord uh, on TikTok. You have these things called moderators. Um, shout out to my moderators out there. They don't really get paid, but I give them like little gifties and stuff like that. Uh, try to pay of what I can, uh, but they're just like a group of 30 people that help keep everything in order when I live stream. Cause sometimes I can have, I don't know, 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 people in these live streams. Um, and it's a, I can't keep up with some of the stuff. Like some people will join and say mean things or something like that. And if I didn't have the discords that are the mod moderators to help clean it up, then I'd be kind of drowning. Uh, but they help keep me organized. That's for sure. So they're just monitoring the comment section there on the TikTok. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. They, uh, I have a group that also monitor the discord and stuff like that. So like a lot of people will join a live stream, right? They're brand new and they're like, Hey, I want to order something. How do I order it? 
Well, if I had to stop every time someone asked me that question, that's all I'd be saying. Um, mm-hmm. So they're there and they're answering a lot of questions. And I have, I'm going to uh, give a quick shout out to Broken and Venona because they're like my two main ones. They help out a ton. So thank you, both of you. And Tim, you, you guys know who you are. All my moderators, you guys are amazing. <laughs> See, this is what blows my mind, though, to a degree about social media. It's these communities that form around very arguably niche subjects like Pokemon trading cards. And then it just becomes this whole thing. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around at times. Um, but anyway, so, Caleb, your your business blows my mind here. But I want you to give the folks at home an idea. What has your annual sales been over the last 12 months? Um, my annual sales for the past 12 months. So I have two different websites, right? Um, and I just started my second website about three months ago that I, so one's for just live streams, right? The other one's for my sealed product. Um, I used to have it all in one website. It's way easier to have it in two. I do have to pay a bit more to my website provider because I have two websites now. Um, but my annual revenue for this year is projected to be right around 2 million. Um, but right now I'm sitting at like 1.1. Dude, that blows my mind. <laughs> now that's revenue people. Okay. That's definitely not, I, I, I really have to stress margins to be big in this community. You have to have the lowest margins you can get. So anywhere between you can take 3% on some products all the way to 15% on others. So that's not definitely profit, but that is revenue. So how intense is the competition when it comes to margins amongst collectors? Is it is it just like a drastic race to the bottom? Um, yes, it can be. <laughs> Big time on certain products. Um, now, a lot of people, usually most of my margins come from people that get that FOMO, right? A set just released, they want it right away. Um, and pre-orders. Like pre-orders across the entire community are usually your margins are a lot better for pre-orders. Um, so if you're first to list something, usually that's when you make the best margins. Um, but sometimes there's products that they don't make that much of. So there's a few, uh, I'm not going to name any names, but there are distributors out there that sell directly to consumers. They will always have the best margins. Even, I can't com- compete with them because I get it from the, I get it from a distributor. So when they sell straight from the distributor to the people, you just, they, they, they you can't win. But they also try to, they're kind of greedy. So they always like high margins too. Um, so on certain products, it's the margins are very, very low. On other products, it's not, it, margins are pretty good. Um, but it sometimes is a race to the bottom. But other times, like usually when a distributor sells a product, they run out of it first um, because they're the lowest on the market, right? Um, it's all about demand and how much is out there. So if you run out of a product, well, you don't have it anymore then the price will gradually go up. If you're the lowest on the market, then you're out, things go up. That's just kind of basic economics. So in my, uh, since I'm a, a, a smaller, I mean, I'm not, it's grown a lot, right? I'm not necessarily a small business anymore, but I mean, a lot of people still consider it a small business. Um, I can kind of gauge products and be like, all right, I'm not going to sell all of this product right away. I'm going to hold on to it for a month because I didn't get very many of them. Um, and then usually it's gone, gone very well for me. Like a set came out called celebrations, right? Back in when it first released, you could buy what's known as elite an elite trainer box for like 40 bucks um, from this set. Well, now, uh, they're right around the $80 range. Um, so just holding on to it for like six months, 
I mean, you, you quadruple your margins just in that short amount of time. So that is so interesting. Um, cause another thought that I want to hear your opinion on Caleb is where, where do you see the progression of the Pokemon collectibles industry going? Is it something that's going to, you know, just increase drastically with time or do you think it's reached a plateau of sorts? What are your thoughts? Well, if everything increased all the time, I mean, everyone would be investing in it, right? Collectibles, just like cars, there's downs and ups. I mean, when I first started my business, I mean, making that much like percentage wise so quick, I definitely, it does come crashing down a little bit. Um, Now, collectibles have been fairly resistant though, um, compared to a lot of other like investments. Collectibles in general are fairly one of the more resilient things. Um, first off, because it's, it's not too much of a barrier for people to be like, all right, I want to spend $20 and buy a card. Right. I mean, with other investments, it's like, all right, this is going to cost me $600 collectibles has different, different levels. Right. So a lot of people can invest in little things. And then you got your head haunches out there that like to ball out and invest in a big time. Um, but Pokemon, just like everything's had its ups and downs throughout the years. Um, in general, I am a firm believer that over time it will keep growing, especially Pokemon in general. I mean, it's the leading toys and collect. I mean, it's pretty much the leading franchise of any, any, anything right now. Like it's up there. You look up top, uh, top performers. Pokemon's definitely usually one or two um, from when it started. It's grown so substantially in such amount of time, particularly in the U.S. Um, like when Pokemon Go came out, it spiked up. Big time um, when people got uh, their a little bit of free money spiked up big time, but so did a lot of things. Um, so, I mean, if I'm thinking about the future, there's always going to be scenarios like that where it's going to spike up again and there's going to be scenarios where it goes down again. But just like uh, the S&P 500, usually long-term investors are pretty happy. Sure. I will say on Pokemon Go, when it first came out, I think that was the summer before I went to college. And... I, I had it for maybe a month or two, but it was such a huge nostalgia trip for me mm-hmm. to see all these old Pokemon from that big fat Pokedex I used to carry around in like the fourth grade. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, that that was to their credit. That was a really cool game because it got people together. It got them moving outside rather than just, you know, dinking around on their Game Boy, Nintendo, whatever it may be. Yeah. That game almost got me shot, John. I'm going to be honest. I uh, was going to a Pokemon like stop. Right. And this it was late at night and it was at a, a, a state park called Zerinsky, right? Zerinsky State Park. Um, and to get to this stop, there was like one or two ways you could walk like three miles and get to it. Or you would cut through this neighborhood and through someone's backyard to get to it like right away. And I was cut through this backyard and all of a sudden the floodlight turns on. A guy comes out and just yells, freeze. And so like I froze completely up. I had a friend with me who like took off the other direction. This dude comes up to me with like, he's has a, a shotgun. He was like ready, has like a shotgun in his hand. And he's like, what are you doing on my, in my yard? And I was like, I played Pokemon go. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny, but could have been really bad. Could have been bad. Could have been bad. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. Anyway. Um, one thing I'm curious. So Caleb, more on the personal side of things. When you're confronted with a rather difficult business decision, who do you go to? Uh, who's your sounding board? Me. Um, 
I mean, when it comes to Pokemon, I don't really... There's not many people more knowledgeable than I am, in my opinion. That might sound come off pretty cocky, but I, I mean, in my opinion, to even think about starting your own business, you really do have to become a master at it. Um, now, there's people that I ask for for like that have done things that I haven't done yet. So like taking out a loan, right, from a bank or going to an investment banker and trying to get them to invest into your business. Um, that scenario, I usually do reach out to a few people um, because it's untreaded territory for me. Um, so like I'm thinking about opening up a brick and mortar just because not necessarily because I want to sell to local people, even though I like to do that, it's more because I can't fit any more product into my current house. It is my whole basement's Pokemon. My whole office is Pokemon. My wife's whole bedroom is Pokemon or her office. Sorry, not her bedroom. Uh, the guest room's all Pokemon. Everything is Pokemon right now in this house. You can't, you can't take a step into the room and there's not Pokemon. I mean, I have boxes to the ceiling right now in my living room of Pokemon cards right next to my big TV, all, all stacks of sealed Pokemon product. Um, so that's why I'm looking into getting it. And for that, I am reaching out for, uh, to help that. I know, uh, the, you know, the Hoiches, right? They, their dad used to own a lot of those, uh, like strip malls. Um, and so I'm going to see if he can help me get a, a brick and mortar st- uh, place at least. I've got to ask Caleb, what does your wife think of this whole thing? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so good news, bad news, right? She's a teacher. So she, uh, she's not home too often. And then she's a volleyball coach too. She played in college and now she coaches. Um, and so she usually doesn't come home to like seven or eight every night. She leaves at like five. So if she had to stay here though, she would get very, she's very neat. Right. And I have everything organized, right. It's all organized nicely, but there's just so much of it and it drives her crazy. So that's another reason why I hired my mom to help get things kind of out of the living room at least. So she has a place to go where she doesn't see Pokemon. Um, but she doesn't mind it. She sees that I'm passionate about it. Uh, so she's definitely, uh, she's never gotten mad at me. She's gotten mad about the clutter, um, but she's never been like, I can't take this business anymore, that type of a thing. And it pays for her like makeup and her facials, whatever girls do. <laughs> I don't, I leave that stuff to her, but yeah. So that's why she doesn't really care too much about it. Um, but it's funny that you even asked that question, John. <laughs> it's been on my mind. So that's why I'm getting the shop, right? <laughs> oh, that's too funny. And no, that makes sense to get a brick and mortar, get it out of the house, all mm-hmm. that. Um, one other thing, Caleb, that I, I'm super interested and I think our audience would be interested to know is when it comes to, you know, you're sitting with profit on your hands. What do you decide to reinvest into the business? What do you decide to take for yourself? How does that decision making process go? Yeah. So that's the hardest question when it comes to business, honestly, is how much do you want to take home and how much do you want to reinvest? Especially when you, when, when like right now in my scenario, I've seen such, such substantial growth that I can't even keep up with it. Um, it's, it's challenging now for me, it's a little bit different just because of how allocations work. Basically I can buy as much as I can and I still don't have enough to sell the people that want it. Um, so it, it for me, it's like, I, I, I buy whatever I can get. Um, now there will be a point where it's like, all right, you can get kind of whatever you want. And that's when that decision making is going to have to come into play. Um, but 
right now, I mean, I've built up a fair amount of value. I'm trying to upgrade my house or buy a new house. Um, when I bought the house that I'm in right now, um, I mean, it's a nice house, but it's kind of in the, it's a little more of a rougher part of Omaha than I'd like to be in. I mean, it was the first house I bought, right? I always have lived by the means of living below your budget. Um, and I've learned that from my parents. Parents are real cheap. I'm real cheap. I'm a penny pincher. I'll call a postal service if I think they charge me over $1, right? I mean, <laughs> that's how good businessmen are, though, in my opinion. You got to pinch the pennies, guys. You got to get money where you can. You don't want anyone to take you for granted because they'll keep taking you for granted. Um, but I would like to upgrade my house here in the near future. Um, my end goal is to, of course, not pay the hefty interest rates that are going on right now. So I've been putting more in the bank than I usually have been because I'd rather buy it in cash and not pay those interest rates. Um, so I do set some aside, um, but I still buy as much as I can. So what's getting set aside is just what's left over, basically. Gotcha. So your your focus is still very much on reinvestment, getting more product. Mm -hmm. As much as I can. Yep. So running your own company, Caleb. Where have you found or where have you noticed your greatest weakness to be? When I first started, it was organization. Um, and I've always been, you can't tell by some of my tangents, I do definitely have ADHD. Um, and that does not help with organization at all. So when I first started, organizing stuff was very difficult for me. Um, by that, I mean, I would sell something and I wouldn't have it. I'd oversell. It's like, oh, crud, this is bad. And back to what we were talking about, reputation is everything. So when I first started, there was a few times where I'd sell something, I didn't have it, and I'd have to actually buy it for more than I sold it for just so I could get that product to the people to keep people happy and to keep my reputation good. Um, but I've gotten tremendously better at reputation because I hate losing money like that. Um, so organization is a very key factor. One of the other reasons why I hired my mom, she's very organized, um, so she's kind of helped me with that a bit, um, keeping things organized, but yeah, for all you business people keep organized. It's very, very, very important. Then on the flip side, what would you say is your strongest attribute? Um, my stubbornness. I hate losing more than pretty much anything. I will stay up for, I think the most I stayed up because of this business was close to three and a half days straight. Um, <laughs> I hate losing, John. I hate it more than anything. I'll do anything not to lose. Um, so when I like, and that's how you kind of have to be. I mean, I have a lot of competitors out there and in my mentality, it's like, you're going to mess with me. Well, I'm going to bite your head off, right? I'm going to drive you into the ground and win. Whether I don't care how long it takes or how much effort it takes, I'm going to win. Um, so that's probably my biggest strength. It's a kind of like a, I've always had a no give up pretty much mentality, especially for stuff that I like. And uh, people notice that they notice like, Hey, this guy's working his butt off to get us this product. Let's purchase, let's throw this guy a bone. He sometimes, some of my stuff's not always the lowest on the market, but I mean, I built up a lot of good relationships. So a lot of people help out small business, right? Sure. Now, Caleb, I know we could probably talk for hours on this and I hate to cut our conversation short, but I have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. I want you to think back to when you were in high school and you said yourself that you weren't the most motivated when it came to grades. What would your high school teachers say about all this? 
You know, I don't think they'd be honestly very surprised uh, because in high school, I mean, I started working at an eighth uh, middle school, right? Um, what was that? Eighth grade. I started working at a retirement home. I lied about my age to start working there because um, I wasn't old enough, but I have always wa- I always wanted to make money, right? Um, so I started working at a retirement home. I worked Monday through Friday every single day at the retirement home from three to nine. I was three three thirty to nine every single day, um, and <clears throat> I I was kind of weird back then. I mean, not weird, but I just didn't sleep very much. I mean, I I still don't sleep very much, but back then I I could be fine with like four hours of sleep. Um, and after I did that, after I worked, I'd go from straight from that job to the gym because back then I wanted to get kind of into bodybuilding. That was a thing that I really wanted to do for a while. As you get older, you kind of you don't care about it as much. <laughs> but I did want to be a bodybuilder at least back then. So I just kind of had a no quit mentality even back then. And my grades were the last thing on my mind. I think I ended up high school with like a two point six. But I did do uh, what saved me is I got a I did very good on my ACT. Um, otherwise, if I didn't do good on that, who knows if UNO would have even let me in. Um, but I've always had a drive, uh, and I think the teachers would have. I think a lot of them saw that. So. I love it. Well, Caleb, thanks so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best. And I can't wait to touch base down the road and hear more about it. You are very welcome, John. It was great seeing you. And uh, to all the people listening to this podcast, have a great rest of your day. You bet. Take care, Caleb. Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sitdowns on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or family member who you think would enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I would certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be. 